good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Romans chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning, really starting in verse 16 and making our way through verse 24. I want to give somewhat of a disclaimer. You may, as we approach Romans chapter 11, uh, this section in particular anyway, think, I don't really know what this has to do with the finished work of Christ. Or perhaps it is that you approach this passage and you say, my goodness, what an incredibly difficult and challenging metaphor. I remember as a 15-year-old recently converted, I began to read the book of Romans, and I thought for the most part, I understood the basic principles of, of Romans. And I remember going and asking my stepdad at 15, can you help me walk through Romans 11? And he did his very best. And still to this day, I find myself in awe of the true glory of Romans chapter 11. Because we read through this blessed section of scripture and, and perhaps it is that all these various questions begin to jump into our minds. What does this particular thing mean? What does the other? But I, I really want us to see the end. Because if we miss the primary point of Romans 11 and we begin to perhaps play eschatology or we want to understand the interworkings of Israel and the Gentiles, we actually will miss the primary purpose of Romans 11. The primary purpose of Romans 11 is not first and foremost to show you how we should interact with one another, though it most certainly does that. The primary purpose of Romans 11 is to show you that which Christ bought. The primary purpose of Romans 11 is to essentially show you the beautiful institution, and here it's represented as a tree, this beautiful thing called the body of Christ. And if we miss this, I, I'm, I'm just going to be honest, if we miss this, you are not going to read and celebrate the doxology at the end of this chapter appropriately. You're going to read it and think, yes, that these things are mysterious. But the issue is we come and see the mysterious nature of God, but we must not miss the revealed. He has clearly revealed the institution, the, the body that he has purchased. And so it is my hope today to take everything that we have just done, singing through, as it were, the crucifixion of our Lord, his finished work, and to show you the end conclusion. And if I can just go ahead and confess to you, I feel totally, totally inept for this task. I mean, I come to passages of scripture where I'm thrilled and I'm overwhelmed, and it is true with this one. But if, we, if, if I cannot communicate the glory and the beauty of the bride of Jesus Christ, and, and, and hear me, you think about it in the, in, the, in the sense of the local church, and you think, ah, but it has so many issues. It can be ornery. It can be difficult. It can be hard to be a part of this. Often we think that because we have missed the beauty in which Christ has, or, uh, Christ has given it. He has adorned her with beauty and with splendor and with glory. And it is my hope today to be able to, in some capacity, see that in such a way that we are blessing the root, that we are praising Christ for what he has accomplished. And so that is the aim. It is a lofty one. I would even appreciate your prayers as we approach this. And so if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 11 We'll read verses 11 through verse 24. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 11, says this. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their, full, will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order to somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches." But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. 
They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Let's pray together. Father, once again, we come grateful for this blessed olive tree. Lord, we come grateful as benefactors and partakers of it. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to come and to rejoice. I pray that you would help us to come and to see beauty. I pray that you would help us to come and to stand amazed at the finished work of Christ and what it has accomplished. Lord, that you have made one new man, that there is a body, that there is a bride, that there is a flock based upon the finished work of Christ. Lord, he has not lost one. He has kept all those who are his. And so, Father, I ask, would you help us to see and to stand amazed at at both the priestly ministry of our Lord and the kingly ministry of our Lord and the way in which he supports the whole tree. This one blessed man, Christ, supports a multitude without number. It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, I want to start in verse 16, and I'm just going to go ahead and introduce this in this way. Verse 16 introduces two metaphors. One, he gives very little to no explanation on, I think because the Old Testament has provided a great deal of clarity on that first metaphor. And in the second metaphor, it is the one that he spends the most real estate elaborating on. And what I want to do is I want to take these two metaphors. I want to look at the dough, and then I want to look at the tree. And I want to, at the end of this, show you how these two metaphors actually do make one beautiful picture. Because they seem as though they are somewhat totally at odds with one another. Very rarely do you go from dough to a tree, right? But instead, he uses this metaphor to lay out very clear truths that are revealed in the Old Testament. And then he takes, I think, a whole premise, really starting with Jesse, and brings it to conclusion at the end of Romans chapter 11. And so we have dough, which we're going to start with, and then we have the tree that we will conclude with. And at the very end, hopefully we will see the beautiful body that Christ has built for himself. So let's start with the dough. If you look at verse 16, it says this, if the dough offered its first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. Now, we are somewhat detached from this, but it seems as though if we understand this appropriately and if we understand it in the light of the Old Testament, then we really reach a pretty clear conclusion. Don introduced our call to worship this morning in Numbers 15, verses 17 through 21. I wanna read that to you and I wanna maybe lay out the motions in which this event would take place. Numbers chapter 15, verses 17 through 21 says this, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land to which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall present a loaf as a contribution, like a contribution from the threshing floor, so shall you present it. And some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. And so just to kind of play this out for us, because we're somewhat detached from this historical event, the first fruits would come in. And as the first fruits would come in, the people of Israel would take their dough and they would bake a loaf and they would bring it to the priest. But there would also be this separate event that would take place. They would take some of the dough that they were given and they would go and they would bring it to the priest. And the Levites essentially would bake their own bread from this dough. Now, if you place yourself in this position, you go, you offer a loaf, you place dough in the midst of this very same almost dough uh, bowl. And the whole concept is that there is a set apart dough for the people or for the Levites. That's the motion. And perhaps it is you think, well, what does that have to do with the immediate context of this passage? Well, thankfully, we actually press forward. And a little bit later on in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 44, verses 28 through 30, there is this very clear statement that's introduced. It's not mentioned in Numbers chapter 15, but instead it's mentioned in Ezekiel 44, 28 through 30. Let me read that to you. This shall be their inheritance. I am their inheritance and you shall give them no possessions in Israel. I am their possession. They shall eat the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering and every devoted thing in Israel shall be theirs. And the first of all the first fruits of all kinds and every offering of all kinds from all your offerings shall belong to the priest. You shall also give to the priest the first of your dough that a blessing may rest on your house. So just to kind of build this out from you in somewhat of a progressive revelation sense, in the book of Numbers, there's the concept of I'm bringing dough, I'm bringing it to the Levites. It's their dough. 
I'm, I'm sitting under their ministry, their authority. They are my priest. And since they are my priest, I'm bringing the first fruits to them. And then later on in Ezekiel chapter 44, there's this very clear statement that in the midst of this whole event, there is also a blessing and that blessing rests on the whole house. And so the, the first doe picture has us bringing and participating in a priestly ministry and then simultaneously that priestly ministry being a blessing and giving a blessing back to us. Now, in the midst of this context, you would think, okay, this is dealing specifically with the people of Israel, right? You would consider, as you're considering this concept of first fruits, first fruits being brought, and you would think, well, that has to do particularly with the nation of Israel. But Numbers 15, 15 through 16 actually clarifies that it is not just the people of Israel, those who were of national descent that would participate in this. Numbers 15, 15 through 16, the preceding text to Numbers 15, 17, for the, assembly, for the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. And so if you think about this dough bowl, if you will, whose dough is in it? Is it just national Israels who are participants in the priestly ministry there? It does not seem so. As a matter of fact, it seems quite clear that the sojourners among them, perhaps it is the people who would have seen the miracles of God as, they were, as God was punishing Egypt and declaring his authority and dominion over all the false gods of Egypt as he delivered them from slavery. Perhaps it is that many of those Egyptians that left with the Israelites would have participated in this event. In that very same bowl of dough, there would have been both Egyptian and Israelite dough. They both came under the priestly ministry of the Levites here. To go a bit further, it says this. You and the sojourner shall be alike before the Lord. That's strong language, especially for the book of Numbers. One law and one rule shall be for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. And so essentially what you have here is this picture of there is a priestly ministry. In the midst of this priestly ministry, there is a consecration of the first fruits to the priest. The priest participates. He receives the very first uh, loaf of bread baked, and he also receives the very first uh, set of dough made. That all of this is consecrated. It's given over to the priest. And essentially the, the primary theme of all of this is we are coming under the priestly ministry of the Levites here. That's what's being communicated. And essentially what Paul is laying out to them is that there is both Israel, national, and there is sojourners and strangers, and all of them are participants in this very same ministry of the Levitical priesthood. So then what is the end? Let's understand this from simply the grammatical historical concept. What is the end of this event in Numbers chapter 15? The end of this event is that there is bread consecrated to the priest because of their priestly ministry. The priestly ministry is in view because of all their workings, because of all that they do for the people of Israel, there is a first fruits given. And as the first fruits are given, essentially everyone who comes is saying, this is my priest. This is the one who reigns over me. This is the one who participates in the sacrifices. This is the one who offers sacrifices unto God for me. And so they come and they say, sojourner, stranger, Israel, all come, bring the first fruits because they see the priestly ministry of the Levites and they see the fruitfulness and the blessing and the benefits of that ministry. So why would Paul bring this up here? Why would Paul bring this very specific event up? One that has foundations in Numbers 15 that makes its way all, all the way into the, new, the third temple being built in Ezekiel chapter 44, why would he bring this up as he's, about to, as he's about to communicate, lay out to us what Christ has purchased, what Christ has made? And I think the very clear reason is because Paul wants us to understand that whether you be Gentile or Jew, you are under the priestly ministry of our Lord. Not of a Levitical priesthood, but of a better priesthood. So let's just kind of play this out again, if you will. If this is the concept that Paul is working through, then let's go back through the motions, the blessings, the participants, and the end. I think that would be helpful for us. The motions are quite simple. How is it that we come to our true and better priest? How is it that we make our way to him? We do not come offering a loaf of bread, nor do we come offering any dough or anything of that nature. Instead, we come simply as the overarching premise of the book of Romans has laid out for us. We come by faith. We make our way into this wonderful priestly ministry only by faith and by faith alone. We enter in and we say, this is our true and better priest. And we come both as national Israel who have believed and a sojourner and a stranger, both coming under the wonderful ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the priest for both the sojourner, the stranger and the national Israelites. Amen. And we have this wonderful priest and we come under him. And as we come under him, we do not offer him bread. He actually is our true and better bread. Instead, we come by faith, laying hold of him and rejoicing in the ministry that he has done. Now that does lead us to ask the question, what then is the blessing that would be given to us as we participate in this earthly, in the ministry of our Lord? 
Romans chapter four has actually already laid this out for us. And I would perhaps invite you to turn your attention to Romans four, four through eight, really four through 12, because there is a clear blessing communicated. Now, what's interesting is in Numbers chapter, um, forgive me, in Ezekiel chapter 44, there is no, no definition to the blessing. There is no statement of what that blessing is. It simply says that there is a blessing that will rest on your house. Well, Romans chapter four, verses four through eight, I think actually gives us the definition and what that blessing actually means. Romans chapter four, four through eight. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. How do we come to our true and better priest? We come to him by faith and by faith alone. Verse six, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from the works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What was the purpose of the priestly ministry again in the Old Testament? Was it not to deal with sin in a shadowy form? So when they came to this shadowy form, when they came to the Levitical priesthood, they came rejoicing in their ministry essentially to deal with sin. How much more so do we come to our true and better priest who has actually dealt with sin? Because the blessing that's there is a foreshadowing of a true and better blessing of imputation of righteousness, of forgiveness of sins, that when we stand before God on the day of judgment, he will not count our sins against us. He is our true and better priest. We come to him by faith and he bestows the most wonderful of blessings on us. The blessing that is the, the, the centerpiece blessing of Romans, the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness. This is our priest that we come under. We come to him by faith. We come laying hold of him by only that which he has birthed in us. But then that leads us to ask the question, well, who then are the participants in this? The participants seem to be quite clear. Again, in Romans chapter four, Romans chapter four, the whole point is who is really a Jew? Who really is a participant, a son of Abraham? Well, Romans four, nine through 12 says this. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? And you would perhaps in the midst of hearing this, the immediate response perhaps was, well, yeah, it's only for the circumcised. But then Paul gives, I would argue, a, a, a perfect and flawless answer to this objection. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? And don't miss this, this is vitally important. Abraham's righteousness was counted to him before any external work had been done. There was nothing that Abraham had done. Instead, all that we understand here is that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Then and only then was he sealed with the sign of circumcision. And so it says, was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a sign, as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. What was the purpose of this? The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Who are the participants in the blessings that the Lord Jesus Christ brings? Is it just national Israel? Is it just the circumcised? By no means. And praise be to God for this. For if it was the case, then I have no stake. I cannot be a participant. But instead, what we find is that Abraham is a model of, of justification by faith and by faith alone. The blessings of God fall to the sojourner, the stranger, and the national people of Israel alike should they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the participants. They come under the priestly ministry of our Lord. These first fruits that are offered are holy. Why? Because the priest is holy. The priest is holy. The priest is holy ministering and caring and protecting and providing for the people in regard to their sin, trespass, and iniquity. And oh, what a wonderful priest we have. He is justified by faith and by faith alone. He has lavished on us a blessing of the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness, meaning that Jesus cloaks us in his own righteousness and says, this is the true and better ministry offered. It's not just the shadowy forms that we are dealing with. No, it is the substance. Our sin is actually dealt with and dealt with in full. Furthermore, we are given all that is needed for us to be reward, rewarded on the day of judgment. Imagine this, and perhaps it is that you sit here today fearful of that day. And there's a reasonable and holy fear. But we do not fear the day of judgment like the pagan. No, we call it a day of glory. Why do we call it a day of glory? 
Because we have a chief priest, a high priest, who has blessed us with the forgiveness of sins. And we do not think he is inept at his task. No, he is all sufficient. He is perfect in his execution of this ministry. He truly does forgive sin, not a sweeping of it under the rug, but a true absorbing of the wrath of God in our place. There is no wrath for you left. And then perhaps you think, oh, how wonderful, how beautiful is that truth? But that is a half truth. The full truth is that on the day of judgment, when you stand before God, you will not be seen as sinner. You will be seen as saint. Unless we misunderstand what this means, it does not mean that you possess some form of righteousness. The whole premise of the book of Romans is that you possess the righteousness of God. This is the priestly ministry of our Lord. The first fruits that have come in, yes, most certainly, they can be understood to be the Gentiles who have come in immediately at the proclamation of the gospel. They can be the Jewish people who heard and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. But we see this, that anyone who is attached to the priestly ministry of our Lord will be holy. And perhaps better yet, are holy. This is what we see. And so if we were to conclude this, we must say this, that As we understand this section, we must say that there is a holy people made up of Jew and Gentile consecrated to the true and better priest. We must not miss the motif that that bread was set apart unto him. Consider this. Not only has he provided for you, made you what you are, but a bit further, he has made you what you are so that he might receive it to himself. This is the premise of Revelation, is it not? that he has a, a, a radiant bride without stain, wrinkle, or any such thing. I think of Song of Solomon where it says, "All oh, beautiful you are, my darling, there is no flaw in you. Well, who can be gladder to say that than the groom? The groom sees his bride that he has made ready. There's without spot, stain, or any such thing. Why? Because he has made her ready. Because he, as his, the high priest, has given her righteousness, has taken away all, all stain, all sin, all wickedness, and made her holy and radiant beautiful. And thus we see the priestly ministry of our Lord. As people are coming in, what is he doing? He is making them holy, declaring them holy. It is the reason that Paul introduces so many of his letters addressing saints, because that is what we are by the ministry of our Lord, saints, holy, set apart. Now, that is the first metaphor. Now to the second. The second metaphor here is perhaps one of the most debated and heated debates at that, text in the book of Romans. As we come here, there's debate over who is the root. There's a debate over who are the branches. I'll be honest with you, it seems actually pretty clear. So let's turn our attention there. First, who is the root? I'm gonna give you the other assumptions here because I, I, I don't want you to read this and misunderstand, though I really don't think you reach the first and second conclusion apart from reading somebody else telling you that's what it is. So what is the first conclusion? The very first conclusion that people would make in regard to verse 16, what is the root? Who is the root that's mentioned here is Abraham. That's the very first uh, mention. That the root here is making reference to Abraham, that you were attached to Abraham, essentially reaching back to the old covenant. I think that that is erroneous, primarily because Abraham must be a participant. Abraham must actually participate in the root if he wants to be nourished, if he wants to be made holy, if he wants to be set apart. Apart from his participation in the root, he has no share of life and life eternal. That's the first. The second one is the remnant. The concept of the remnant being brought in that we have just left that premise and now he's building out what that will come to the conclusion of, which is ultimately the church. The remnant, I'm convinced, cannot be the root here, primarily because the remnant is explicitly mentioned later on in regard to those who are already participating in the tree. So that leads us to ask the question, who is the root? And I would imagine the vast majority of you already know the answer to this because it actually seems quite clear in the reading, but just in case you need a little extra... I'm convinced that what we understand from this particular passage is that the root is Christ Jesus himself. He is the nurturing vine. Now, if you need some further evidence here, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 through 11, I think very clearly lay this out for us. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria and Egypt and Pathras, from Cush, Elam, Shinar, from Hamath and the coastlands of the sea. Now, unless we think, okay, well, that's not how Paul's using it, but later on in the book of Romans, Paul uses the exact same quotation in Romans chapter 15, verse 12. And it says this, and again, Isaiah says, 
the root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Who is the root? It seems as though Paul's understanding of the root is none other than Christ himself. I would actually go so far as to argue that it seems as though the only real root mentioned throughout the entirety of redemptive history is Christ our Lord. Unless we find any reason to doubt, let's turn to Revelation 22, 16 and see our Lord explicitly call himself this. Revelation twenty two sixteen. 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I cannot reach any other conclusion than to say that Jesus Christ is the root of this blessed olive tree. And if you need one more, I would turn my attention to John chapter 15, where Jesus calls himself the vine. And I would argue almost explicitly lays out the same premise of Romans 11 in his own words, going so far as to make it an I am statement of using the divine name amid such a claim. So who is the root? The root is Christ, and the root is Christ alone. And we will come back to that premise. We need to understand that first and foremost. If we miss this, I do not know how you consistently exposit the whole book of Romans. It all falls apart. But as we see this, we understand Christ must be the root here. And I would actually argue that the root motif has conjoined with it the kingly ministry of Christ. Who is he the root of? He's the root of Jesse, but more so than that, he's the root of David. He's the true and better king. That's what's in the mind, I would argue, of the Apostle Paul because it's what he concludes with in Romans 15. Now that leads us to go to the second portion. So now that we have the foundation laid, we have the root clarified, let's understand the rest of this motif. So in verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. So here's what I wanna do. I wanna grab various pieces of this metaphor, lay it out for us and reach what I'm convinced is the crescendo of this section. So the very first thing we need to understand is who are the branches? There are three distinct branches mentioned. The first branch here that is mentioned, if you look at verse 17, some of the branches were broken off. Who were the branches who were broken off? The branches that were broken off were none other than national Israel who had refused to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is very clearly laid out in the previous text. It makes reference to their, let their table become a snare to them, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. It's quite clear that God has sent a hardening upon them actually so far as later on, he very clearly states at the Gentiles saying, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. And so what do we have? We have first and foremost, the Israelite people who had not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, they had rejected him. They are the ones in which he writes in John 1, that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They are cut off. They are removed based upon their unbelief. Secondly, the grafted in branches. Listen to what it says again in verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, who is the grafted in branches? The grafted in branches are believing Gentiles. They are those who gladly came, going back to the previous metaphor, and brought their dough to the priest. They are those who said, this king, this is the king of glory. I know him. He has testified to his goodness. I have believed by faith that he has forgiven my sin, trespass, and iniquity, that he has clothed me with righteousness. I have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And because they have believed on him, they are now connected to that wonderful root. And then finally, it goes on to say, do not be arrogant toward the branches and going back up to verse 17, it says, among the others. I would argue that the three branches that we're looking at here is national Israel who rejected the Messiah, who looked at Christ and said, not him. The Gentiles who saw the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and said, that is my king and priest. And then finally, the believing of Israel, the remnant, 
that is mentioned in the previous text. They're all united to this wonderful, nourishing root. And that leads us to, the, I think, the third question to ask. What does being grafted into the olive tree mean for those grafted? And I'm gonna give you what this means based upon this text, and then I wanna come back to it and clarify what it means. It means that both the believing Israelite and the believing Jew are truly attached to that wonderful vine that is Christ, that root that's mentioned here. And that means that they share in the nourishing root. They experience his nourishment. I love the older translation that says the fat of the root, meaning that they experience his fullness. They experience all the blessings of God through him. And then finally, they are supported and ultimately upheld by this root. We'll come back to see what that means here in a moment. Now, that leads us to ask the question, how then are we who are not natural, how are we grafted in? How is it? I mean, consider this for a moment. If we take the picture, if we take the metaphor at hand, essentially what's taking place is the believing Jews are being clearly identified by being broken off that they have no participation in the root that is Christ. And then behind them, what you have is a, a hollowing out of this place in which they once were and Gentiles are being grafted in and they are experiencing and enjoying the nourishing root of Christ. Now, over time, it would become very difficult, I would say almost impossible to actually see and understand which roots were, which branches were grafted in and which ones were natural. They are both participating in and enjoying the very same substance. So how is it that we come, Gentiles, by faith come to be grafted in? Well, first, very clearly stated in verse 8, 18, again, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And here then would be the arrogant Gentile statement. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Paul does not rebuke this comment. Instead, he very clearly says, this is true, but it does not give you reason to boast or to be arrogant by your participation in the root. Ultimately, what it means is that the unbelieving Jews are broken off that we might be grafted in. How then are we grafted in? We are grafted in first and foremost by the kindness of God. There is not, hear me, before we go any further, there is nothing. There is nothing that we have done. There is no demand that we have made of the King of glory that said, you must graft me in. No. It is by his kindness that he took a fallen branch on the wayside of the road, shoved it into the wonderful tree of Christ and said, eat and drink. It is by his kindness and by his kindness alone. And so we reach back into Romans chapter two, we will see that it's by his kindness that he leads us to repentance. Any participation that you have in this wonderful olive tree is by the kindness of the Lord. It is only by his kindness. It is only by his goodness. It is only by his grace and mercy that you come to share in it at all. And yet here we have, knowing with absolute certainty that we are participants and we are participants by his kindness. But should we go a bit further, we will also see that not only is it by his kindness, but it is also by faith. Listen to what it says in verse 20. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. The reason that we participate, the reason and the way in which we lay hold of all of this is not by any working, not by any laboring to make sure the grafting connects. Instead, it is simply by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's saying with absolute certainty, he nourishes me. I know with certainty that should I cast myself on him, that I will actually be well-fed and cared for. I come under that priestly ministry and I know that I will have the forgiveness of sins, that I will have the imputation of righteousness. And if someone comes to ask you and says, well, what have you contributed to the tree? The answer is nothing. I have contributed nothing to this tree. I have offered it nothing. I have given it no works. I have not come telling it that I will bear a unique and wonderful fruit. Instead, it says, come eat and drink and I will give you life. And that's what we see our Lord do. He grafts in ruined sinners, Gentiles, who have no rightful claim on this tree based upon any ethnic line and says, I will gladly give you life. It is the kindness of God. And oh, how we see it clearly displayed. Now, how do we respond to this? I mean, seriously, let's, let's, let's talk as Gentiles for a moment, shall we? How do we who have no rightful claim of the tree, how do we participate and conduct ourselves inside of that tree? Because Paul actually spends a great deal of real estate dealing with this. 
He does want us to understand how do we conduct ourselves with the other branches, those of national Israel who were not broken off because they truly did believe in the Messiah. And how do we even respond to those who were broken off? Do we look at them and are we arrogant toward them? No, as a matter of fact, if you understand what we just walked through, the reasons in which you're there is only by his kindness. There should be never an ounce of boasting in you anyway. There really isn't anything to lead to arrogance and pride because you know that it's only because of Christ that you stand in him. But should you need the further rebuke, he says this, that we must not express any type of arrogance toward the branches. Look again at verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, and this is what he calls to mind, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Meaning that we have no reason to be arrogant toward the other branch that is eating the same thing that we are eating, that is feasting on the very same thing that we are feasting on, apart from the root nourishing us, both the natural branch and the unnatural branch would not live. It is only based upon the root. There is no reason for boasting. There is no reason for arrogance. And actually going a bit further down, we see that we should understand the fear and the severity of God. Now, this is really important for us because if there was any passage that lays out to us that God does not elect based upon ethnic lines, then it's this one. Because what does he say? He does not show any unique, any, any, I don't even know, extra gospel kindness to the Jews here. Listen to what it says in verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. How should we understand the severity of God? The severity of God does not stay at sword because you have shouted out that I am a Jew nationally. It does not. It does not respect any type of ethnic guard. It does not respect any birthright guard. As a matter of fact, the only thing that it respects is that you were elected from before the foundation of the world to participate in said tree. This is the premise of John. John 1, the introduction of what does it mean to participate? What does it mean to be born of God? It means that you're born of his will and his blood. That's the way in which we come. There is no other means of entry and there is no other means of staying the severity of God than seeing Christ drink it for us. There is no extra gospel offer of reconciliation. The only offer of reconciliation is in the finished work of Jesus Christ and in his finished work alone. He does not offer another means of reconciliation. It is only through Christ. And perhaps it is, the whole purpose of this is to lay out the very clear conclusion that if God is going to express his severity toward the ethnic people of Israel, he will not stay it for anyone. It's coming to all. All who have rejected Christ, all who have by unbelief have not come to him, they will experience the severity and the wrath of God and that should cause us to tremble. It is no surprise then that he says that you should not become proud, but you should fear. There is a very real sense, dear saint, that we should have the fear of the Lord. I do not mean that we fear and we tremble before him knowing of Christ's reconciling work. I mean that we know who he is. He is not like us. He is perfectly holy and just. And the only means by which you enter into his presence is by the Holy Son of God making you such. There is no means by which we traipse in in and of ourselves. He makes us able. And there should be a full-orbed view of his transcendence, of his holiness, knowing that apart from his wonderful working in Christ, we would drink the cup of his wrath eternally. There is a real reason for fear, but we fear him now as those who are united to him by faith. We fear him as we fear a father, as we tremble before his authority and dominion. Now, let's go a bit further. What is God's kindness? Because you look at this again. It says in verse 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Both of these two things should be taken special note of as we walk through this section. The kindness of God, which we'll deal with here in a moment, the severity of God is that if you are not in him, his mercy and grace flow through Christ and through Christ alone. It comes to us. We participate in it only through Christ. 
That leads us to ask the question then, what then is his kindness? Time would fail me to speak of his kindness. But if I could, I'd like to give it a shot. The kindness of God is that knowing that we were sinners, knowing that we had no right of participation, knowing that there was nothing that we could contribute, nothing that we could offer, nothing that we could give, God in his infinite grace elected, set his love upon a people who were unworthy and said, I will make them my bride. I will graft them into my beloved son. I will take sinners and I will attach them to something so wonderful and holy that it will clean them. God's kindness is taking fallen men who have no claim, no right of participation and giving them right of participation by new birth and adoption. God's kindness is the sending of his beloved son to dwell amongst us for 33 years without any participation in sin. enduring temptation like we know nothing of it because we always give. In his perfect kindness, he sent his beloved son to dwell with us, being mocked, being scorned, not having the fullness of his beauty revealed to the world around him. And then we see him have no place to lay his head. He is not even like the foxes or the birds. He lives in humility, all throughout the entirety of his life, throughout the entirety of his ministry. And then when it all comes to a head, they have people mocking him by using par excellence statements of this is the man, this is your king, this is the son of God. And all of those par excellences were true. He is the true and better Adam. He is the king of glory. He is the son of God. And they mock him with those titles. And he says, to the cross I go, silent before his shearers. He set his face like flint. He was crucified and nailed to a tree. This is an expression of his kindness. This is a demonstration of his patience, of his glory. It is most certainly a demonstration simultaneously of his severity because he did not stay the sword when it was his son being lifted up. What is the kindness of God? The kindness of God is the sending of the son. Can we ask for a greater kindness? Can we ask for a greater demonstration of his, of his benevolence, of all of the kindness and bounty of God being given to us in the man Christ Jesus, to see him take on the form of a servant, washing feet of fallen men and then seeing him nailed to a tree? I can think of no greater kindness of God than the gospel of God. And this is the entire premise of Romans, is it not? I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the kindness of God displayed, though many would look at it and and I think rightly call it foolishness. It is foolishness because the kindness of God is so far above anything that the human mind can fathom or understand. We must call it foolishness. But oh, how it is a foolishness of magnificent kindness. It is the gospel of God. This is the expression of his kindness. How do you partake of the tree? Because the root descended. He came to us and bid us come. Now, lest we leave our metaphor altogether, let's conclude with this metaphor this way. Verses 23 and following. And even they if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So here's the question. In the midst of this wonderful tree, the church, as I would call it, I think rightly so, you have the natural branches that were removed because of unbelief. You have the Gentiles that are being grafted in. You have the natural branches that have always been there because they have believed on the promised Messiah. And then the question becomes, can those who were broken off, can national Israel who has not come in at this very moment, can they be grafted back in? And the answer is a resounding yes. Why? Because God has the power to graft them in again. And he grafts them in again in the very same way that he grafted you in, by faith and by faith alone. And the whole premise of this, I want you to see this. At the conclusion of this, what you have is a tree that is ultimately defined by one thing. What places you in the tree? Faith and faith alone. 
There is nothing that we bring. There is no ethnic lines. There is no circumcision. There is no acts of righteousness. None of this permits access to the tree. It is by faith and by faith alone that we come. Now, in the midst of this, I'm convinced that we have something beautiful. And the best way for us to note its beauty is to combine the two metaphors. I don't think that he's pulling these two things apart. I think he's laying out a very clear premise and he's giving two great illustrations for them. And so on the other side of these two metaphors of the first fruits and the dough that are holy and the root that is holy and thus the branches are holy, which we need to go back to that for a moment. How is it that we understand the participation? How is it that we can say that we are holy? We are holy only because that which nourishes us is holy. You have peace only because that which nourishes you is at peace with God. You have joy only because that which nourishes you has bought you joy in God's presence. I go back to passages like Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Those are mine, not because I as a branch have right to it, but because the root has access to it. And since the root has access to it, he brings me with him. He nourishes me and gives me all that is necessary so that I can rightly come in. And so at the conclusion of this, we must say the reason any branch is holy is because the root itself is holy and righteous and perfect. And because I am connected to him, all that is his is mine. He nourishes me. He cares for me. I participate in all of the fatness of the root, all the nourishment of that root because he has grafted me in. It's the reason that we can say that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ because our participation in them only comes through Christ. That's the only means by which we come. So we see the branches are made holy because of the root and then let's combine the two metaphors for a moment. What do we have on the other side of these two metaphors? This first metaphor in verse 16, again, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And secondly, if the root is holy, so are the branches. What do we have on the other side of this metaphor, of these two metaphors? We have first, one holy community. We have one holy community. Why? Going back to the dough, why is the dough holy? Because the priest is holy. It's set apart unto him. Why is the branches, why are the branches holy? Because the root is holy. So what do we have on the other side of these two metaphors? We have a holy communicator consecrated to a holy priest. It belongs to him. Or better yet, we belong to him. We are given over to him. We participate in him. We enjoy him. And once again, I'm convinced that what is in view here, because this concept of offering the first fruits is particularly priestly in nature. What you have here is the priestly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ in view. And should we go a bit further? We have also one people nourished by the wonderful root of Christ. The nourishment that we have, the participation that we have, the joy that we have, all comes from the root of Christ and we participate in it. And so if we could sum it up in this way, what do we have? We have one new man in the place of two. We have one holy, consecrated, set-apart man in the place of two. And if I could just maybe read this to you, because I'm convinced that this is a perfect summation of the argument that the Apostle Paul is trying to make. You do not have a Gentile and a Jew at the end of this. You don't. You have a church. You have the wonderful bride of Christ, that thing that has been foretold since before the fall this beautiful, radiant, spotless, holy, consecrated people. This is what you have at the conclusion of the book of Romans doctrinal section. The conclusion is that Christ has done all the work, see his people displayed. He, they participate and enjoy the root of Christ. There is no longer Jew or Gentile in the church of God. There is a bride. Concluding it this way. Ephesians 2, 11 through 21. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace it might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and and members of the household of God built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Behold the kindness of God that he takes the stranger and the alien, that he takes those people that were of his own nation, that apart from him working faith in him, in them, would also be cut off. And he makes one new, beautiful, wonderful man. And that man has no other name than the church of God. The reason that it's so important that we understand this, they're saying, is because I really don't think that we have appropriately grasped the beauty of the bride. We see the son and rightly so. We should stand amazed that he nourishes such a people. But hear me, this person that Christ has created is holy. It is radiant, it is beautiful. And we dare not, we dare not question his kindness. We dare not question his ability to make holy. We dare not question his reign as king. Dear saint, what we understand from Romans 11 is that all the wonderful workings of Christ have actually, hear me, not possibly, actually created a people that are set apart for him. And this people, this holy, radiant, beautiful people will be the very same people that have made themselves ready on the day of judgment. They will be the ones gathered around the throne. We enjoy and we rejoice in the work of Jesus Christ when we see the church as it is. Beautiful, beautiful. And you say, ah, but I have been sinned against here. That sin has been washed in the blood of Christ. You say, these people can be difficult and trying at times. God has made them holy. And you are called to live in a godly and holy manner, which we will deal with in Romans 12 and following inside of this community. But here is what we never question. We never question the sufficiency of Christ's priestly and kingly ministry. He has made us holy. He is our king and he rules over us. And he has bought this body with his blood. Let's pray together.